Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for October 20th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be taking a look at a bunch of news, including a potential Pacific Rim crossover that could see Godzilla and King Kong uh, come face to face with the mechs. Uh, we'll find out why David Fincher turned down a Star Wars movie and if Ryan Johnson will have any involvement in Star Wars Episode Nine. And we'll take a look at some hilarious Geostorm reviews that make might make you want to go see the movie in theaters this weekend. And uh, we'll find out a little bit more of the Dark Tower TV series that I'm not convinced is actually going to ever happen. Uh, joining me on today's show is Ben Pearson. Hey, what's up? And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Um, so guys, uh, let's just get into it. Uh, oh, I also forgot to mention in the mailbag, we're going to be talking about deceptive movie trailers in marketing. Um, so we'll get to that after the news, but let's get, let's just get right into the news. Uh, the director of Pacific Rim, uh, two is out promoting the film pre-release and he has said that the uh, Pacific Rim crossover with Godzilla and Kong may eventually happen. Ben, what do we know? Yes. So the Pacific Rim franchise is owned by Legendary Pictures, which is the same studio that is producing 
the MonsterVerse movies, which are Godzilla and King Kong and, you know, Mothra and all of that stuff that's going on. That, that franchise started in 2014 with Gareth Edwards' Godzilla. Uh, it's It includes Kong Skull Island. It's building toward a Godzilla versus Kong movie that's coming out pretty soon. So, uh, yeah, the director, Stephen Esten Knight of Pacific Rim Uprising, was asked if it was possible that there could be a crossover between Pacific Rim and these legendary MonsterVerse movies. And he said, I won't say there's an Easter egg, but there's been a lot of discussion about that possibility. Look, I think it would be fantastic to have the Pacific Rim universe join Legendary's Monster Universe. It seems like a natural step. And part of that big overall plan after the third movie we've talked about is that could happen. It's always a possibility. It's by far not a certainty. It's merely theoretical at this point. But as a fan myself, I would love to see that happen. So uh, we don't know if this is, I mean, it's certainly not official. Uh, as he says, it's its just a theory, but um, it makes a lot of sense, especially considering the subject matter of all three of those sort of quasi-franchises. Um, Peter, what do you think about uh, well, I just a, to say, a Pacific Rim creature wandering in and just punching King Kong in the face? <laughs> well, I just want to say this is like the worst kind of news story. Usually when 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 a reporter asks someone like, do you think this would be possible? And they're like, yeah, I think it could be possible. Um, but it, but there is something to this because he says that they've had discussions and there's some kind of Easter egg in the movie. Um, so it definitely seems like it's it's more than just completely theoretical they've had like some kind of talks on it um i i don't know what to think of this This is kind of cool i like kind of where we're going with this mashup movie culture but on the other side of things godzilla at very least took place in modern day and we kind of didn't have other monsters i guess specific realm takes place in the future right and skull island takes place in the past Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, so is Pacific Rim the future of this monster universe? Are, are, are Godzilla and Kong like the beginning of the kaijus coming to Earth? That's kind yeah, of interesting. interesting. Hmm. What do you think, Chris? I mean, I'm sure they'll find a way to make it work. But, I mean, I'm going off the first Pacific Rim. But the, the first Pacific Rim is so different in style to both the Godzilla and the the King Kong movie we've gotten so far. Like the Godzilla movie is very grim and dark and King Kong was sort of dark to an extent, whereas Pacific Rim is very colorful and it feels like it's set in a completely different universe. So I I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, maybe the, the second Pacific Rim will bridge that gap, but based on the first one, it seems like they're, they're in completely different worlds, so it seems kind of strange to mash them together. Yeah, and I'm not sure how they will tie this together. I know, um, you know, when you're watching uh, Kong Skull Island, it seemed like there was almost no interest from the filmmaker to tie that into the monster universe. It was kind of like thrown in there, and it didn't feel like it was part of the movie whatsoever. Kind of like how, you know, the stuff in Batman vs. Superman felt like just like it thrown in there um, for Justice League. But uh, I don't know. I, I think if they're going to make this MonsterVerse work, and I know I've already said this on the podcast in the past, they need to actually put some effort into making it work and making it connected. And it can't just be this half-assed thing that just comes together. Like, I think that you need to do, do some planning. You don't need to shove it down our throats and make it feel unorganic. 
Um, but it seems like you need to have the filmmakers on board, which it doesn't seem like they have been on board until maybe Stephen DeKnight. Yeah, and and he also mentions that this theoretically would happen after the third movie. So some of that planning that you're talking about could happen in Pacific Rim 3, assuming that Pacific (laughs) Rim Uprising does well enough to warrant a Pacific Rim 3. Um, But, you know, that could be part of those discussions that they were having is like, hey, if this does well enough and if we get a chance to do a third movie, maybe we can plant those seeds. So after the third film, when, you know, maybe after Godzilla versus Kong, uh, when we've reached the end of our announced slate of these movies, now we'll have an opportunity to sort of combine both of them and bring them, bring these worlds together. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. You, you know, I don't want to prolong this any further, but um, in the Godzilla movie, Godzilla ends up being the good guy, right? And in the Kong movie, Kong ends up being a good guy. So if they mashed up all three of these into one movie, is it the, is it the Jaegers fighting kong and godzilla or or kong and godzilla on the side with the jaegers fighting these even bigger <laughs> i don't understand how it would even work i think you're probably thinking more about this than anyone <laughs> at legendary at this point <laughs> that that is probably true uh moving on uh rumored in the past uh we've heard many directors who have supposedly met to make a Star Wars movie or have interest in a Star Wars movie. One of those directors we've heard rumors about is David Fincher. We have not gotten confirmation about him actually in a meeting until now. David Fincher is talking to the press and he explains why he passed on directing Star Wars. Chris, you wrote this up. What do we know? Right. So in the past, it was rumored that Fincher was on like a, a short list basically to direct a Star Wars film, and it was never really confirmed or denied until now. Where uh, Fincher's out there, he's doing press for Mindhunter on Netflix, and he said he, he talked to Kathleen Kennedy about the film. And basically, what it boils down to is just the pressure. He, he says you'd have to have it really clear your head. I think you'd have to really be sure this is what you wanted to do because either way, it's two years of your life, fourteen hours a day, seven days a week. That's a direct quote from him. So, I mean, basically, it just sounds like it boils down to he's not completely adverse to the idea, but it just seemed like so overwhelming. You'd have to literally commit 110 percent that he just wasn't ready to do that. It's interesting, I think, on two parts, because number one, um, Fincher seems to be interested in doing a big budget film like, you know, he was trying to get, uh, what was it, 20,000 leagues under the sea off the ground at disney for a while you know he was talk in talks for world war z2 or he's making world war z2 we'll get to that in a second um it's interesting that he would consider at least you know go in for the meeting for the star wars film what do you guys think it is do you think it would do you think kathleen kennedy wanted him for a, a standalone movie or do you think this was part of the skywalker saga that he was that he was wanted for Hmm. I didn't Fincher get his start in Lucasfilm in some capacity. Am I conflating him with somebody else? No, no, no. Up? You, you are there. That is the truth. He, um, he worked for uh, industrial light magic, I believe. Yeah, on, he, I think he came up with this rig that was basically taking like a steady cam and running through a forest and, uh, basically slowing down the, or no speeding up the footage so that it would look like you know a you were on a vehicle like flying through the trees and stuff like that. And he approached ILM with this idea, or from what I've heard, 
and they were making Return of the Jedi at the time. And I think they already had their plans for the speeder bike chase and how they were going to do it. But they were kind of like, this guy is coming up with ideas that we're coming up with. Let's hire this guy. So he got hired to work at ILM. And I, I think there's this uh, famous story of uh, maybe I'm mixing this up. Is it Michael Bay? Did Michael Bay ever work at ILM? I think he did. I feel like Michael Bay did a uh, um, storyboard for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, the the yeah. truck chase is that true? I think so. <laughs> Hold All on, right, we're, well, we're gonna we... stop this and we're gonna look this up. <laughs> okay, so I I was correct. I just watched an interview with David Fincher where he talked about he had this idea for that um, kind of uh, a vehicle going through like a city or trees, and he went to go rent a Steadicam. And he found out that all the Steadicam rigs were rented by ILM already. So he went to his buddy at ILM and was like, you know, do you know when they're going to, like, you know, not be renting the Steadicams anymore? And he told him about his idea. And the guy, and his friend ILM was like, who would you hear that from? And he was like, what do you mean hear from? He was like, I'll call you back. And basically he got a call back from Dennis Murin, who ended up offering him a job to work at ILM based on that idea because that was something they were already doing for Return of the Jedi. Um, but yes. Michael Bay also worked at ILM and was in the storyboard department, not doing storyboards. And he saw, famously saw some storyboards for, I think, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, um, yeah, I, he said that he told Steven Spielberg that he was 15 years old and, and said, I thought Raiders of the Lost Ark was going to suck based on the storyboards that he saw. So that's <laughs> interesting. But anyway, all of this was just to, to point out the fact that uh, Fincher has a, a history with Lucasfilm. Um, and I was wondering if, you know, maybe nostalgia had some sort of uh, factor in that decision of them being like, hey, let's, you know, reach out to this guy who sort of got his start with us. Um, I can't imagine that they would have thought about him for one of the saga films, but he seems like the kind of guy who would be really interesting, um, you know, producing one of or directing one of these uh, uh, standalone movies. But I don't know. I, I guess we'll never know unless he reveals more information. I mean, he seems like such like kind of an auteur filmmaker that you, he wouldn't work well within the environment of, you know, a company like Marvel or Lucasfilm that has kind of a grand vision. But if he was going to work at all, I think it would be, you know, that standalone a Star Wars story. Um, but right now he's working on World War Z 2. Chris, he also said something about that. What do we know? Right. So he basically just said uh, he's working on the script right now with Dennis Kelly. And he said, we're hoping to get a piece of material that's a reason to make a movie, not an excuse to make a movie. So, uh, I mean, as of now, there's no like release date for the film. It just seems like he's just being, working behind the scenes right now, hammering out that script to get it to the place it'll be where I guess he can officially commit to it, which I guess is refreshing. It shows that he doesn't want to just make a quick cash grab. He actually wants to put some thought into World War Z too, whether whether it deserves it or not, I don't know. Um, does anybody here actually want to see Fincher make World War Z 2? Absolutely not. Chris? I mean, I, I love Fincher as a director. I did not like World War Z 1, but I am curious to see what, if anything, he does with the zombie genre. Just because I feel like that genre has become so stale and tired that if anyone can maybe give it 
new life, it might be him, or at the very least, he'll do something interesting with it. So that's that's what I was thinking, but my my thought was like that was my first thought, and then I was like, oh, he's doing a sequel. The zombie stuff has already been established in the first movie, so he sort of has to theoretically. I mean, unless he unless he just like reworks the entire. Um, concept of what a zombie is for the second movie. It seems like he's going to have to sort of play by the rules that the ben, first film ben, established. They can, they can evolve. It, we, we know that. <laughs> um, no, what, the only reason I would be interested in seeing David Fincher do a World War Z 2 is because I want to see what he can do in a bigger budget sandbox. Um, I don't necessarily want to see him do a zombie movie or World War Z 2, but uh, I, would, I, I really wish he could have got that... Uh, what was it, Captain Nemo or... Yeah, 20,000 leagues. Yeah, yeah, I wish he could have got that off the ground. Uh, but next in the news, uh, we were talking about Star Wars before. Uh, Ryan Johnson directed uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi. J.J. Abrams is coming back to direct the third in this trilogy, uh, Star Wars Episode Nine. Uh, you know, it was initially rumored that Ryan Johnson wrote scripts for not only The Last Jedi, but also Star Wars Episode Nine. We had heard that that, that was not true now that Last Jedi is finishing up and ready to premiere later this year and Episode Nine is developing with J.J. Abrams, people are wondering, is Ryan Johnson at all involved in the development? Ryan Johnson did this interview with, I think, The Hollywood Reporter, and basically he says that J.J. Abrams is doing a third movie. I'm not involved in it. They'll be writing their own story but continuing on what, what with what we did. Um I think it's a little disappointing because I feel like I feel like Star this Star Wars Skywalker saga is being planned almost like a you know a TV show where a new director comes on for each episode and there's no showrunner with an overarching vision. <laughs> does that, does um, that make don't sense? you don't you think that Kathleen Kennedy and the the Lucasfilm Story Group stand in as the showrunner in this situation? You know, I would think that, but then you hear. Ryan Johnson and J- I know J.J. Abrams had basically uh, he, he I know for a fact he could have done anything he wanted like it was basically his show he was given full control with Force Awakens so from there yeah you'd think the Lucasfilm story group would have some kind of overseeing capacity but Ryan Johnson has said very much and I think Pablo Hildago has had some interviews and it seems like they were very hands-off and kind of like just being a resource of like, oh, you know, this doesn't happen in this world. Do you know what I mean? Like, we've talked about that in the past. It seems like this is very much filmmaker driven. That could be BS. It could be, you know, Disney has been criticized for how the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been kind of run by Kevin Feige. So maybe it's just kind of, um, you know, a presentation to the public in that sense. But I don't know. But don't, what do you wouldn't you think? want? Wouldn't you want it to be uh, filmmaker driven instead of you know somebody just coming in and sort of uh, checking off the boxes that are already laid out for him? I'm not sure if you're playing devil's advocate or if this is a serious <laughs> question. Um, yes, I, I well, I don't want it to be someone coming in and checking off the boxes. Number one. Number two, though, I wish that there is a grand plan so that when we watch this trilogy together you know after it is completed that it seems like it was like planned you know it was one planned out vision if that makes sense no chris what do you think i mean i'm sure they're at the very least they're exchanging notes behind that i i feel like i've read stuff like that about how at the very least like 
when Ryan Johnson was writing The Last Jedi or working on it, at least he was watching uh, The Force Awakens to get an idea of where to, you know, where to take the story. I mean, I'm sure it's not like a free for all. There has to be someone guiding stuff. Plus, like, I mean, as the, you know, the, the, the standalone movie show, someone there is very hands on because they keep having problems behind the scenes where, you know, directors aren't exactly doing what they're being told to do, I guess. So someone behind the scenes is doing something to make sure it stays on a clear path. At least I hope so. I guess we won't know for sure until after the the last film comes out or the third film at least comes out. I don't know. I, I think I'm very cynical about all this. I feel like this, you know, the expanded universe that they're creating with Star Wars is all kind of like course correcting as the films happen and kind of reactionary and not, you know, some grand vision of someone behind the scenes. It's kind of like, let's let these, I don't know. I, I guess I could see the other side. I personally, I could see like, you know, oh, I want to see these artists be able to create their own vision in this world. But at the same time, like, I kind of, like the idea of you know someone planning it out and George Lucas didn't even plan it out <laughs> with right. the, the original that's, trilogy. That's the thing is like that's why I'm sort of wondering why uh, you're sort of approaching these movies more like a TV show is because the original Star Wars trilogy I mean yeah he had like loose ideas and stuff but it, it seemed like those movies were very much like um, crafted on a one by one basis instead of, you know, he didn't sit down and write the, the scripts for all three of them at the same time. So, uh, but I, I don't I, know. I, I would like to think that George Lucas had the idea that the, the trilogy, when he started to make the second film was going to be about the redemption of Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader. And I feel like, and you know what? It, it could still be that with this because, you know, J.J. Abrams did the first part of this trilogy and he had plans and he could fulfill those plans. So, Maybe maybe it is a bad example to say that you know you need some oversight outside of the filmmaker. If the filmmaker is doing the first part and the end part, uh, he can fulfill the things that he wanted to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, moving on, a film coming out this weekend was not screened for the press. It's called Geostorm, and it is a uh, I guess like a classic 1990s uh, disaster film. Um, ben, you wrote up a list of. Some of the funniest review quotes. These these reviewers went to the theater, paid their own money to see this film and get reviews up for the movie going public. And uh, it's some of the most hilarious stuff. Makes me want to see the film. Can you give us some of the best? Yes, just a, a brief taste. Uh, Screen Crush's Matt Singer, who actually recommends that you don't watch this movie, says uh, Geostorm is so punishingly bad it makes Independence Day resurgence look like last year at Marion bad. Uh, Chris Bumbray from Joe Blow says it's such a mess that you wonder how such a huge gamble could go so wrong. Yet for all its faults, Geostorm is quite wonderful in its awfulness. Were this an actual spoof, it would be nowhere near as funny as it is. Um, there are a couple really funny parts here. Um, let's see. Matt Goldberg at Collider says, you know, the scene in Day After Tomorrow where Jake Gyllenhaal outruns weather director Dean Devlin must have watched that scene and thought to himself, what if that, but as an entire movie, every set piece in Geostorm is just people outrunning weather. And then I think my favorite one is uh, from Luke Buckmaster at uh, an Australian outlet called Daily Review. He said, to appreciate this film, which I suppose can be rationalized in the context of a guilty pleasure, one needs to be on the same page as it, which is to say somewhere semi-illiterate. 
<laughs> so uh yeah there's a lot of uh a lot of great stuff here and it, it definitely seems like this is one of those um so bad it's good movies where if you uh you know have a couple drinks beforehand and go into this movie with uh you know knowing what you're getting yourself into that you could definitely have a lot of fun with it now are either of you actually planning on seeing this film I mean, even after all of these quotes that sort of make me a little bit curious, I just I I think I would rather do anything else. So probably not. How about you, Chris? I'm I'm considering it. I'm mulling it over. I have not reached a decision yet, but uh, I'm leaning more towards yes than no. <laughs> um, I, I want to see it, but there's so many good films I have not seen in theaters. I haven't seen Mother yet. I haven't seen The Florida Project. And I have this movie pass card that's burning a hole in my pocket. And I'm not, you know, I, I haven't gotten my $10 worth this month yet, um, which is sad. But uh, it, it, does it deserve to be used on a good movie or does it deserve to be used on Geostorm is the question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, moving on. Chris, you're a huge fan of Stephen King, as we've talked about in the past, and uh, you were not a huge fan of The Dark Tower. The Dark Tower TV series is still supposedly happening, but now we know it's a complete reboot already? What do we know? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Stephen King did an interview with uh, Vulture, basically, where he said, first and foremost, he said he thought that uh, Akiva Goldman, who wrote the script, did a pretty good job whittling down you know a very complex mythology into one film uh i don't really agree with him there but i mean <laughs> he you know he if he wants to believe that that's fine and yeah but basically he says in the interview that the, the tv series they're developing now is going to literally be a complete reboot of everything so it, it won't tie into the movies or movies sorry at all so i guess it's like a fresh start um I still have my doubts they're even making this TV show. I, you know, they can keep claiming they're making it as much as they want, but I don't think I'm going to believe it exists until I start seeing trailers for it because it just seems so unlikely. I mean, at the same time, The Dark Tower does have a huge following. The books, I mean, have a huge following. So I could see them really wanting to get this right. But as of now, I, I'm really doubtful that's going to happen. I mean, what what do you think the chances are? I don't. I mean, I don't know what the, the Vegas odds are, but uh, <laughs> what what are the Atlantic City odds? <laughs> I'm gonna say it's like right now it's slim to none. I mean, you know, Stranger Things have happened, but right now it just seems so unlikely. Again, at the same time, Stephen King is really big right now. I mean, it was a it was a huge box office hit, so. I could see them like the, behind the scenes, the producers saying, look, here's our proof that we can make this work. We just have to get it right. So, I mean, maybe it is, a, does have a better chance than I'm, I'm giving it. Um, okay. Let's get to the mailbag because we are running out of time. Uh, Jim from Chicago writes in that he is en enjoying our discussions on trailer spoilers and how the movie going community see movies and wanted to ask you guys opinion on deceptive trailers or bait and switch trailers. He says, when I was younger and the film Lord of War with Nicolas Cage and Jared Leto was coming out, the trailers made it seem as though the movie was an action comedy. And while there were moments of levity in the film due to the absurdity and extreme nature of 
being gun runners, the actual opening of the film was a sequence that followed the creation of a bullet all the way to the point where it was used to kill someone, which, by the way, was an awesome sequence. Uh, but getting back to his e- uh, email and was very effective at settling, setting the tone uh, for the rest of the movie. I did end up enjoying the movie quite a bit, but it always stood out as a movie I was basically tricked into seeing. Have any of you guys experienced this uh, as well as uh, with other films? I uh, can't wait to hear your stories. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Jim from Chicago. You can submit your questions by sending them to Peter at slashfilm.com. Leave your general geographic location when sending an email so I can mention it on there. Okay, guys. Uh, uh, Chris, uh, have you ever been tricked into seeing a movie based on deceptive marketing? I mean, I don't know if I'd say I've been tricked, but I remember specifically the trailer for uh, Where the Wild Things Are, the Spike Jones film. It made it look like this very, I don't even know how to describe it. It looked like a completely different movie than what I got. And I'm, I'm happy with the finished film, but the trailer looked like this sort of whimsical, uh, <laughs> cheerful sort of film. And the movie itself is very like existential and dark and kind of depressing, which I'm fine with, but it, that was not how it was sold at all. Like the trailer looked like this cute indie comedy it had like an arcade fire song playing over it and it just looked like this charming jim henson film and that's not what the final film was at all i mean like i was i don't say i I wouldn't say i was tricked into seeing it but i was expecting something completely different than what i got and i know you're a big fan of crimson peak angie han in 2015 wrote an article for slashland.com uh, that had the headline, turns out Crimson Peak is actually a gothic romance, 15 movies with misleading trailers. Um, and she used, obviously, the marketing for Crimson Peak as an example here, which was uh, mismarketed. Uh, but you're a big fan of this. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the marketing on Crimson Peak? Right. So the, the Crimson Peak trailers made it look like a, like a straight-up horror film. It used the music from um, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula over the trailer. And so and it, it played up there's, – there's a thing in Crimson Peak where the soil is red and it looks like blood. And they kept using a lot of shots of that in the trailer to make it look like it was blood. <laughs> um, and uh, Guillermo del Toro – he kept saying, you know, this movie is not a horror movie. It's he kept saying, you know, the marketing is misleading. At the same time, I kind of feel like he protested a little too much because even though the film isn't a straightforward horror movie, it has a lot of horror elements in it. So I've always felt like people who've complained that that movie wasn't really a horror movie are sort of being disingenuous because I, I kind of think it really is a horror movie. It's not you know, a typical horror movie, but it's it's horror-themed, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I think the the studio was marketing it, not just in the trailers, but I remember I, I did a, a Crimson Peak uh, haunted maze at Universal Halloween Horror Nights um, that year that that film came out, which is weird because, you know, the movie isn't really a horror movie. Um, movies I can think of... You know, it's really weird because I, I can only really think of more recent movies. Uh, one that I think was more recently is Passengers, which I think was marketed as something it wasn't. Um, you know, they were hiding that twist. We've talked about uh, that in another podcast. 
And even like the tagline for the the movie was uh, quote nothing happens by accident, um, <laughs> which is actually the whole movie is set in motion by an accident in the film's first minutes, which is completely wrong. Um, <laughs> Drive, I think, was marketing as a Fast and the Furious movie. Um, and I, I think that got a lot of people that probably weren't going to see that movie into theaters to see it. I remember Iron Man 3 was marketed kind of like a darker Marvel story with the Mandarin as the villain, and we know what happens with the Mandarin, and it's more of a Shane Black comedy than a darker tale. Um, those are the ones that come to mind for me. Uh, before I go to bed, I just want to say that like I think it's it's a tough thing because – if you're tricked into seeing a movie that you end up liking, it's not a problem, right? Because you ended up liking the movie. If like, you know, there there's tons of film trailers like, you know, you look at Rogue One, half the uh, half the footage in the trailers for Rogue One were not in the movie, and you can consider them deceptive, uh but generally people like that movie, so generally people didn't have a problem with the marketing of the movie, even though they wanted to know what, what the original cut was. And I think, you know, we were talking about Star Wars Last Jedi and those trailers, and we think that there's some kind of clever editing there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what people think of that after they see the movie, if it is actually what we uh, speculate it might be. Uh, ben, do you have any examples of this or any thoughts? Um, sort of what you're just talking about where uh, the experiences that I've had have been more like um, footage that didn't make it into the final cut that was used prominently in the marketing. And I think I may have told this story before in this podcast, so I apologize if I have. But the biggest example that I can remember where I got the most angry about it was I went to go see uh, the Jason Statham movie, The Transporter, based solely on this, this sequence from the trailer in which Statham is standing in a kitchen and the bad guys launch a rocket launcher missile straight through his kitchen window. <laughs> he deflects it with a silver platter into his open oven and the whole thing explodes. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to see this movie immediately. And that scene ended up being cut out of the final film. And I was so like distraught about that when I was, whatever, 14 when that movie came out or whatever it was. Um, but as far as like uh, trailers that are I guess there's a difference between that and then trailers themselves sort of being cut in a deceptive way uh, to shape, to give you a, a different idea of what the movie is. And I think Angie's piece is, is really good. That's where I got a lot of these ideas. Uh, Catfish, if you remember that movie, it definitely made it seem more um, dangerous and dramatic, uh, you know, almost that, like a that, horror thriller. Yeah, definitely. And then it, the actual movie, which I ended up liking and, and I like that movie a lot, but it's just, it's not what the trailer makes it seem to be. Um, Magic Mike is another good example where that one seems way more sort of um, like a, like a superfluous, you know, fun kind of movie where you go see a bunch of male dancers and like, that's all the movie is, but it's actually, that film is like, a pretty serious exploration of, um, you know, like Channing Tatum's character, uh, just a guy, a working guy. And like, it just happens to be, that's the business that he's in. It's not necessarily as fun as the trailer makes it seem to be. And then spring breakers is the other example where it's like that movie is marketed to be, uh, sort of like, uh, it, it's weird because that film is like a parody of the movies and, and TV shows that the trailer claims this very movie <laughs> is. Um, so it, it, that's a, a strange, uh, 
think because it's hard to sell the tone a, a complex tone like that in a trailer and maybe if you you know i understand why they do these things it, it's not that's not going to be something that's going to uh appeal to a large audience but it ends up being a pretty good movie so uh i think you might have a lot of people walking out of it being mad and that's where like cinema scores come in you know with movies getting bad cinema score ratings that has a lot to do with it has everything to do with the marketing and people feeling like like they were lied to but um but yeah those are sort of three of the the biggest examples i can think of yeah uh, the thing is a lot of these trailers and a lot of these companies these studios that uh, they put together these movies they'll show them to test screening audiences and the test screening audiences in addition to writing all these different things on on this slip of paper after the movie and doing this kind of discussion they'll they'll write like you know the favorite parts of the movie and then you know when they go to to edit a trailer they'll often try to put those parts or make it you know the best of what people liked of the movie and i think sometimes you know that becomes like uh Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad, I think, is a good example of this, where the trailers were cut into be kind of like this. Uh, the music was was cool and it was bright and whatever. And that's not what the movie was at all. The movie David Ayer did, which it's like every other movie he did, is kind of dark and whatnot. And then so many people were in love with the trailers that Warner Brothers supposedly like had the trailer editors recut the movie and there was reshoots and, and whatnot to basically make the movie more like the trailers that everybody were, were had fallen in love with. And the, the end result was kind of a mess. So that, I think that's probably the, the only example I can think of off the top of my head that is like the negative effect of mismarketed uh, trailers. Do you guys have any other uh negatives where like you were actually very disappointed yeah that's a tough one chris you have anything not, not that i can think of with top of my head yeah i think suicide squad is just a that's a good example to end on yeah well, a terrible example to end on. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh if you guys out there have any examples of this that you actually were excited to see a movie based on the trailers and you went inside and were extremely disappointed Oh, by the way, another one I can think of. This isn't one that I was disappointed in, but when I was uh, much younger and the trailers for Scream came on, I think they were, you know, I'm not 100% sure of this because this is my memory of it, and I haven't really watched the trailers for Scream in, what, two decades or something? Uh, but I think the trailers were highly marketed on Drew Barrymore being the star of the movie. Yeah, and, that one made Angie's list as well. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Um, and a, as you know, Drew Barrymore is not does not uh, is not the star of the movie. <laughs> so uh, I'm not going to say that I was disappointed by that because that I, I ended up loving that when that came out that film and that was such a I think uh, now it's been done to death. But back then, I feel like that was a clever uh, way to to market and start the film. Uh, but yes, so if you guys have any that you were tricked into seeing you feel completely betrayed send us the examples of peter at slash film.com we'll try to mention them on our podcast on monday uh leave your name in general geographic location uh where can we find more of your work online chris uh i'm at slash film.com and i'm on twitter c evangelism 413 ben where can we find more of you i am also at slash film and you can find me on twitter at ben pears I'm on Slash Film. All the articles you hear today are on SlashFilm.com. You can find me at tw- on Twitter, at Slash Film. Uh, you can 
follow this podcast on Slash Film on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Go to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review. Uh, that always helps us out. Tell your friends, go on Twitter, go on Facebook, uh, spread the word on this podcast. Uh, it, it is growing uh, at, a, a, at a good rate, and I appreciate all of you for listening. We will see you on Monday. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.